Hello, DER Task Force, and welcome to Episode 3, Blockchain. I'm Colleen Metalitza, and this topic is particularly near and dear to my heart because I spent several years in my prior role at Green Tech Media Research studying blockchain and energy and the implications it might have for DERs. So before we dive into the episode today, just a couple quick notes. First, there are a few swear words, especially towards the end, so if you are listening with children, please be mindful of that. Second, a couple definitions for those who are newer to the energy space. If you're an industry veteran, feel free to skip the next minute or so. A REC stands for Renewable Energy Credit. This is a certificate that separates the environmental attributes of renewable energy from the physical electricity that it generates. As an example, a company that purchases RECs can be considered 100% powered by renewable energy, even if their local power source is a natural gas plant. A related term is the PPA, or Power Purchase Agreement. A PPA is a bilateral agreement between a project developer to sell power to a customer at a fixed rate. This rate is usually lower than the utility's retail rate, meaning the customer gets lower electricity, and often the developer gets the revenue from selling the excess power into the grid, as well as the potential tax credits. Finally, the grid is a dynamic system that has to always have supply and demand balance. Often, we think about the supply side changes of turning on or off a power plant in order to respond, but there's also something known as demand response, which is the industry term for when a customer responds to a physical problem on the grid by adjusting their demand. So this could be lowering your thermostat if you're a residential customer or agreeing in advance to turn off an industrial process if you're a larger commercial or industrial customer. And with that, let's dive into the episode. For... Those are the listeners who don't know me yet. Uh, my name is Colleen Metalitza. I currently work at Con Edison and, as always, speak about my personal beliefs and not the beliefs of my company. Uh, but before I worked for Con Ed, I worked with Green Tech Media Research, now Wood McKenzie, as a microgrid and blockchain and energy analyst. And so I became really into the space basically after we had a lot of client questions around what it was and I started digging in. And in addition to, you know, a tool that funds cryptocurrency or digital money, uh, also is something that has the potential to disintermediate intermediaries. And as we all know, in the energy space, there are many, many intermediaries, whether it's a utility or a retailer, there's just a lot of opportunity for how we play in the space. One of the things that I want us to get into today, though, is how blockchain doesn't necessarily disintermediate intermediaries, but actually enables new types of transactions. So ultimately, blockchain is an IT infrastructure set of tools that enable transactions to happen without knowing who your trusted parties are. It has the ability to disintermediate these sort of central systems, but can also add potential new transactions onto systems in ways that we haven't thought of before. So I'm excited to explore that. But first, I want to give a couple caveats around what we are not discussing today. So cryptocurrencies uh, have a lot of potential good and, and bad things associated with them. We're not focused here so much on the crypto side. 
we also will be talking about different types of blockchains and it's worth noting that blockchains that use what's called a proof of work consensus mechanism is a very energy intensive way to validate transactions that's what bitcoin uses it's what ethereum currently uses um, the ethereum is trying to move towards a less energy intensive consensus mechanism known as proof of stake so Not going to talk about that we're not going to focus okay. too much on the proof of work side. And that's largely because energy use cases are never going to be able to use proof of work in the long run because it would be more energy intensive to verify your transaction than the amount of energy you would be transacting. And so it just doesn't make sense in the energy space. And so I, I just want to sort of throw that out there. Maybe. People are working on the Lightning Network. I, I get what you're saying. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not enough yeah. of an expert to write no, it off completely. No, it's a good point. It's a good so, point. So like, I, you know. So maybe I, what we I should say. I haven't seen a, a very well, fun, you know, we'll get, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. So, we'll get, so what I said, articles, we're not going to get into it. When all those articles were coming out that were like, you know, Bitcoin uses more energy than Iceland or whatever. Yes. Okay. Um, we're just going to get this out of the way. If, I, yeah. I'm, I'm just. I'm if you're an energy it, person yeah. and you read and believe those articles, the, the like. <laughs> You well, know, Bitcoin true. is going to ruin, is going to like cause eight degrees Celsius climate change, whatever they were saying. Just like go dig a little deeper, study a little more. There's, uh, we're not going to get into it, but I would just say, don't, uh, don't just blindly listen to the headlines because they were sensationalist, I guess. I, I would, I would dig a bit, d bit under the surface and, and I think you'd be surprised at what you'd find. On, right. On the, so on that simultaneously, all... though, there were like crypto evangelists. There was this one guy in particular, I don't remember his name, who was claiming that the energy intensity of Bitcoin was a good thing because it created the largest global bounty for clean energy in the world. Drive clean energy adoption, not because it enables some new thing. It's it's just possible. It uses so much damn energy. No, it, it's like, it's uh -huh. if it's it's basically, I mean, it's a race to the bottom for the ch like. Bitcoin is energy in a sense. So kills if you, the, the energy efficiency in me. The energy but, efficiency in me dies if, when we think about just using more. But the whole point of that article is that like you can, I mean, it's a global network, so you can ship, you can send Bitcoin wherever you want. So you can generate, if there's like under one cent per kilowatt hour energy from a solar farm, you know, you could mine Bitcoin there. And then, so, so it's like a energy liquidity in a way. Well, so like our resources would move to the cheapest areas and that that may yeah. be that could be renewables but in my view that problem there is actually capacity factor you know you don't get solar and wind all day so did, did you, you see this company that just raised a, a pretty large series a they're citing uh natural gas generators in in the shale gas regions where a lot of gas is being flared where there's no pipelines and where there's no transmission mm. They're creating power with it, and then they have a shipping container full of like NVIDIA GPUs that are Bitcoin mining. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the awesome. Only way to turn electricity into that's value great. Without there wires. you go. Yeah, it's there better than go. flaring, so, right? So there, <laughs> we've already gotten so, into what we said we're not going to get into. So. We said we weren't going to get into it, and then it drew us in anyway. Thanks, uh, Duncan. As everyone can see, there's a lot happening in this side, but. We're a DER podcast, and so we're going to move on from energy intensity. Suffice to say that none of us support energy intensive mining that isn't using clean energy, and we're f moving on from there to the better, bigger and better things. So obviously, uh, blockchain energy became a hot topic uh, in 2017 
there were over 150 companies that got into the business. Many of them were startups that began in 2016, 2017. There are hundreds of millions raised both from traditional venture capital and actually a lot from a blockchain specific type of crowdfunding called an initial coin offering that's somewhere between an IPO and a seed fund and a you know Kickstarter, basically all three of those things combined. That led to a lot of hype in the space, which tracked pretty well with price of Bitcoin. Uh, and so as that went up, everyone got really excited and they were raising all this money and everyone was like, this is going to change the world and how we think of it. And then with the crash of crypto pricing, I would say the new age of how we look into the potential use cases of blockchain in the energy space. And so I think it's become a lot less hype and a lot more, how do we actually make this happen? Uh, it also means less people are talking about it than before. But I think that's actually exact reason we should be talking about it because fundamentally blockchain and other distributed ledger technologies, which is I guess, sort of the suite of technologies that allow for a group of computing devices to come to consensus on whether a transaction should be allowed or not, which is essentially what blockchain is doing, is saying like, yes, this person would like to transact with this other person. We can see that both of them have fulfilled the necessary components of said transaction, and so we're going to allow it. So as an example, Let's say that Duncan has solar on his home and he wants to be able to sell the wrecks associated with it to James at a certain price. He would say, I have solar, I'm producing it. The blockchain would verify that. James would then see that price and they would have what's called a smart contract, which is essentially just computer code that enables the automation and enforceability of a contract. Is that something that is sort of intrinsic to blockchain or could you have smart contracts on non-blockchain systems? Um, smart contracts were first enabled by Ethereum. So Bitcoin didn't originally actually have smart contracts because you were just transacting money. So Ethereum brought the sort of if-then statement to blockchain. So if I am producing energy and someone is willing to pay me more than three cents a kilowatt hour for it, then sell them that energy. So they're, they're sort of very tied together concepts, but not necessarily like the same thing. Exactly. Uh, so blockchain is kind of a set of tools. So one of them is the smart contract. Another one is the consensus mechanism. So how you are verifying the transaction and that the sort of requirements in the smart contract are met. And then the third is sort of that tokenization. So the creation of some immutable store of value that can't be undone. Can you just briefly touch on like, as opposed to sort of, uh, you know, the utility or a bank, you know, we're trusting them to do all the work. So they're, they're what's called a trusted third party. We're like, maybe we shouldn't just be trusting these like monolithic centralized servers to, to do all this really important work for us. And is there like a better way to reach consensus and, and validate transactions and run a network and all this stuff without those entities. And and that can be, you know, Bitcoin is aimed at banks, but that that can be extended out to maybe the utility or, or the ISO or however you want to look at it, I guess. Exactly. So to date, when you want to make a transaction with someone, exactly, there needs to be a third party who you say, you know, I'm going to give this money to Venmo and then Venmo is going to give this money to Duncan, right? And I'm going to, it's going to have some emojis in it. It's just a big ledger. Um, like, It's just a big ledger, right? Venmo account. is tracking that. Yeah. And and they're the trusted third party. And so if you think of Bitcoin, what you're saying is instead of 
using Venmo, which is owned by PayPal, right? And so now by using Venmo, PayPal has all of your data, all of your financial data. What if I just sort of put this out into the ether of the internet and the Bitcoin world and I pay Duncan? And now the thing is, is that people don't know that I am associated with Colleen. They know my sort of user hash. Uh, which is the fancy cryptographic side of blockchain. And then they know, and they see a transaction that has happened, but they don't necessarily even know the amount. And then they also don't know that Duncan is associated with his. And so there's this level of privacy that's enabled in certain types of blockchains. Although as we'll get into that privacy, the amount of data that is shared and and who needs to know what uh, does change and can be sort of curated for a blockchain. So obviously, if you're trying to control the grid, you would need to understand at very least where energy is being generated, you know, in order to be able to optimize grid control. So we can get into some of the privacy concerns later, but suffice to say, it gives end users, the customers more control over who has access to their data, how they're able to use it, and who they can transact with, which opens up a lot of new possibilities and transactions. And I, I like uh, Nick Sazabo. He just says, trusted third parties are security holes, meaning like we kind of have these single points of failure <laughs> that's, that's managing all of our data. And it's really easy sometimes to, you know, if you hack into their system, you get access to everyone's information. Whereas, you know, they're really, they're a slow, expensive, immutable distributed database. So it's not just like one big server, it's distributed network of servers or databases that theoretically what you're gaining is is security or, or at least in like the successful networks like Bitcoin that we've seen. And, and so I think that's one thing that I wanted to point out off the top is like, I was seeing a lot of articles in energy like, oh, super fast, cheap transactions. And it's like, that's not like mm-hmm. the expensive sort of energy intensive slow nature, you know, 15 minute block times or whatever it can be to like settle a transaction is by design. It's a, it's a feature, not a bug. And so if we're going to have this conversation, what we really want to be talking about is kind of like security, governance, you know, trusted third parties, not like, oh, it's just going to be a cheaper, faster network. Because, you know, I, I saw that conversation swirling around a lot. It, it was weird. Like on one hand, you had people being like, oh, it enables cheaper, faster transactions. And then on the other hand, your people are being like, this is super energy intensive and too expensive and slow. So it's like, it almost felt like they were arguing against each other and no one was actually talking about the actual right. like design trade-offs we're making from, from a system architecture standpoint. In my view, blockchains aren't these like unicorns of they're secure, they're fast, they're cheap. Like there's actual just really real trade-offs that we're making in, and in I, talking about using them. And I think that's where people took what was happening in finance and tried to say the same things for energy and didn't really think about what fast meant in finance versus energy. Because in finance, you send something to someone in another country, it could take weeks. Right. And so 15 minutes is a lot faster. Right. Across um, borders, yeah. In energy, where you, you, know, you, have, you have real-time sort of energy markets happening, which maybe right aren't, you know, minutes, but, you know, hourly, maybe 15 minute intervals, suddenly optimizing and doing bids, you know, on a 15 minute interval scale on a blockchain is, is not feasible in right a lot of currently in, in current senses. I think for me, that's the real shift that I do see where I get excited about blockchain is the ability to take those security components and those ability to settle transactions without an intermediary 
and enable increased DR deployment across distribution grids so that you can coordinate and optimize those areas at sort of the feeder level up rather than down. And so I think that's rather than the sort of top-down approach that's taken today. And so I think that to me is if there was a unicorn of what I would hope would happen with blockchain, that that would be it. Right. Uh, I think we're very far from, to your point, there's a lot of questions around the architecture of the system. I think a lot of questions also around whether that future system makes sense. I, th- I think one of the things we aren't going to get in totally to today is exactly whether the specific technology tools of blockchain itself are the best tools for this. We're not IT infrastructure people. We're not the best people to have that conversation, but I think it's sort of the possibility of blockchain or other communication devices that allow for this collaboration among competitors, among people who don't necessarily have the ability to trust each other without this sort of consensus process in order to work together. And that's where I want to sort of dive into. Yeah, totally. This isn't like a for or against. It's like we're kind of analyzing as one potential sort of tool or way to do this, right? You know, a, a grid with a lot of DERs on it, right? And I, th- I think that's the key that I wanted to point out too, is like you said, a DER-based grid is we need to start operating the grid more in a bottom-up fashion than a top-down fashion. So that's the point where, you know, analyzing blockchain as, as playing a part in that makes sense. That's sort of what I was trying to say too, is like, there's no, you know, there's no like really good secure blockchain out there currently that can probably handle the data throughput on the grid, right? From like a cost mm-hmm. perspective. That doesn't mean I don't think it's, you know, I think it'll, it'll probably get there. That's not the field I work in, obviously. But I just wanted to make sure we're not only talking about the data throughput here. It's like, yes, everyone knows there's a lot of work going into that. That That's not the point of the conversation. The point of the conversation is, can this help in that kind of bottom-up grid that we're, we're ultimately building, right? Right. And so I think in examining what we all sort of see happening in this energy transition as we increase the number, amount of DERs, some of the questions around how you manage that kind of grid of the future arise around three areas that we had sort of been discussing before the show of the cybersecurity concerns, the governance structure, and how you operate in real time. Yeah, so maybe I'll kind of give a brief, you know, overview of that, I guess. I mean, I had written an article on it, yeah, in 2018, maybe, when everyone was talking about blockchain and energy. You know, already, we're, there's this huge cybersecurity risk on the grid because our systems are so sort of archaic. So I think, you know, when, when you think of like a distributed grid and, and a, you know, a grid with a lot of distributed energy resources on it, we've talked a lot about this shift from a centralized analog structure to a distributed two-way network with all these kind of digitally native assets. I think that's the part of it that everyone is immediately like, oh, you know, <laughs> put blockchain on the grid, everything's going to be better, we're all going to be freer, blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think within you know, the problems that I see in kind of creating that system architecture is threefold, right? And, and that's where, you know, simultaneously we're, we're overlapping with where blockchain may apply. So like you said, it's, it's cybersecurity. And so by that, I mean, when you talk about Nest, electric vehicles, power walls in people's homes and solar and even, you know, big buildings and tenant occupancy and all, the, all, all this occupancy data, all this stuff that helps understand demand, match supply and demand on the grid, there's going to be a lot more user data 
you know, flowing onto the grid. And people talk a lot about how, you know, already we're, there's this huge cybersecurity risk on the grid because our systems are so sort of archaic. But now we're talking about sort of adding this, you know, super digital layer on top of that. And I I don't think we're really prepared for it. The cybersecurity component of blockchain is one where it offers a lot of promise, but is still not totally understood. And so there's actually a test happening right now with Commonwealth Edison announced a pilot. They're working with a company called Zage, looking specifically at how the blockchain that Zage has worked on um, can add a cybersecurity layer to transactions within the ComEd microgrid. And so they're testing that technology now. And I'm personally really interested in seeing where that comes out. Because for me, cybersecurity is the biggest tenant of if blockchain can get cybersecurity right, it unlocks this wave of potential for how we transact on the grid. And if it can't deliver on the promises that it's been touting, then we have, I think, serious concerns with how we share data in the future. So for me, blockchain cybersecurity promise is like the biggest potential that it offers in terms of how we think right. about sharing data. When right. you say cybersecurity for blockchain, are we we're purely talking about data security or do we you know, the, like the big cybersecurity threat on the grid is not just data, right? It's actually real-time control. We're all worried about, I don't know, the Russians blowing up a power plant or something, right? Yeah. Does blockchain help with sort of that side of the house or is it's, it just like all this historical data that it protects? The promise is both. So companies like Zage are promising essentially a digital fingerprint for IoT and DR devices where if that device specifically is hacked and it requests something out, you'll likely know that it's different because something about the way it's digital signature is changed. And secondly, and importantly, because the smart contracts on how that device should work are stored in a distributed nature, it's not that you can hack into one device change its smart contract of how it's supposed to function, right? So let's say a thermostat is when a demand response event is called, it's supposed to turn its temperature down. And now imagine that your grid hack is that when a demand response event is called, you turn all the thermostats up. The millions of thermostats that you've hacked into now go in the wrong direction. If that smart contract says that's not what it's supposed to do, then it can actually block that from happening in theory. Oh, so you're on saying on, on the device itself? Yeah. I think what's important to like you know, kind of lay out for, for Duncan here is we'd have like one gigawatt huge power plants, right? And so I don't even know how you do it, to be honest, but like hack or, or like compromise that one power plant, or maybe three of them, you could do a lot of damage on the grid. When we talk about DERs, you're talking about like 1000, one megawatt devices now or 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 uh you, you know a hundred thousand one kilowatt devices or that doesn't it's not quite equivalent but it's a totally different um way of sort of architecting a system right and i think that's a super important point that people don't see sometimes they're like nests are so easy to hack into like why are we this is so bad for the grid mm-hmm. but it's like but the impact of getting into one nest or one battery bank is not at all equivalent to hacking like a substation or a utility or, or something like that. Yeah, there's there's different levels. A lot of larger pieces of equipment generally need physical hacking in addition to software hacking, meaning you would also need to get on site in a lot of cases, but to totally mess things up, not to cause some chaos. You hear a lot about SCADA systems being hacked into, which is, you know, the way the utility 
manages its grid. And so that's pretty concerning um, in general. And so I don't know that any of these solutions that blockchain can offer solves all of our cybersecurity concerns, but I think it does potentially help with how you handle increased DER penetration on the grid with a lower risk of, you know, someone hacking into a, a low level, you know, solar panel inverter, and then somehow like causing, you know, mutations along up the grid into the SCADA system, right? Which is sort of the other concern that utilities have is somehow right. someone can hack something that they don't have control over and how that can mess up their control of the grid. What this is sort of predicated on is what's called a DSO or a distributed system operator, where because things are getting much more granular and assets are getting put in customers' homes and buildings, we need an operator sort of at the, or a marketplace at like the local kind of distribution feeder level, right? So this kind of gets into a second component that I think makes the case for, for blockchain potentially playing a part in this, which is real-time operations. So there's a lot more, when you talk about smart meters, inverters, batteries, all these assets, they can respond, you know, at the sub-second level to signals, right? Versus in the analog world where you have power plants with spinning magnets, that's why we have 15-minute intervals, right? Because we don't really need that granularity. But now as we get these distributed assets installed, much quicker responding, they're digitally enabled, they're much more granular. We need to create these marketplaces at the at the local level in a way. So that's a huge push. That's what New York Rev, which we've talked about, is pushing for. And so within that, the actual way in which we operate grids is fundamentally changing, right? And so Colleen, you had an interesting point about I learned yeah. a new term today. Could you could you go into the Loch Ness curve? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, one of the things to note is when the grid was more centralized and we had central power plants, right? Power came in through the distribution network and was kind of able to be distributed throughout that via the general physics. But as you start <laughs> the general physics of the grid. So that was the utilities uh, role, right? That was the utilities role. Yeah. But as you start having resources within the distribution grid, you have to start caring a lot more about where power is generated and where it's consumed at a much more granular level. So basically, uh, while I was at this conference in August, I encountered a utility discussing some of the issues they face in California, where they have a high penetration of solar resources, meaning rooftop solar. And everyone here knows the duck curve, right? Everyone, every con you can't go to a conference without someone, at least one to five people, throwing up an image of the duck curve, which is basically that as we produce more and more distributed solar during the day when it used to be our peak period from, you know, maybe two to 6 p.m., you're actually producing a lot of solar. And so your need for central grid produced energy decreases. And then it ramps back up as it gets dark in the solar. Well, everyone gets home from work. Outputs. And then everyone gets home from work. They start turning on everything at home, right as all the solar is coming offline. So you have like this now doubled effect where demand is actually increasing. Yes. So it's not ideal. It's not ideal. Um, you got to turn on a lot of gas plants really fast and really they're expensive. Fast. So. And so that was the sort of historic problem was like, how do you get all these gas plants online? But the new problem that's happening, that's specifically happening at a feeder level, um, meaning- A feeder level you know, meaning like your telephone wires on your block, right? Like that's a feeder. Exactly, a exactly. Way. It's like your, yeah, think of your, your neighborhood block, your cul-de-sac, if you live in the suburbs, you know, that's that sort feeder. of area. And, and everyone to, in your neighborhood has solar. 
right. and everyone in your neighborhood has solar. And so now what's actually happening during the day is that instead of just needing very small amounts of grid electricity, you're actually producing more electricity than your feeder is meant to be able to hold. And that creates um, over voltage problems on the grid, which, you know, in theory, if you had batteries, you could absorb that power. But if you don't have batteries, it becomes this question of, you know, do you need to upgrade your distribution system in order to be able to handle that? Or do you need to curtail people's rooftop solar? And how do you manage that curtailment? And so this is something where I think blockchain or really any sort of grid edge computing and optimization becomes really important because it's not something that exists at the macro level, right? If you're looking at the grid overall, this problem is not there. But when you start taking it apart and looking at the specific areas where you have this high concentration of DERs, it does become a grid issue. And so the different ways you could is, in, is if you had a market that was at a feeder level, you would be able to incentivize someone to install a battery because you know they would be earning for that, but they aren't earning for that if you're looking at things at even the neighborhood level, let's say, because maybe at the neighborhood level, you have the right amount of power. And so there is this question of how can you increase granularity without suddenly giving the utility or the ISO millions of devices to be individually managing. And so that's where being able to bid into and settle a system without sending data into a third party, potentially at a feeder level becomes really important because then, right. you know, the ISO could say, okay, this is the amount of power we need in this area. But then as you drill down further and further, those decisions don't have to go to the ISO. They can happen within a feeder where this neighbor says, well, I have a battery and so I'll buy your power so that you don't have to curtail this in, or so that we don't have this issue here. In that case, does the, the computer in everybody's basement that's running this know the traits of the feeder locally and like together you know, arrange power so that you're operating within the constraints of the feeder. Well, that's so and that's like a, some central authority programmed those computers. That, that's a point that. that I think really gets into like the weeds of this, which is why despite everyone on Twitter being like electricity needs blockchain, like the grid needs uh, blockchain, right? Is there's like a physical base layer that has like actual constraints. It's not just sort mm -hmm. of a financial settlement. There's a physical thing going on, right? Exactly. So, so when you hear peer-to-peer, -peer, which everyone loves talking about peer-to-peer -peer energy, generally they're basically, they've reinvented Rex, right? <laughs> they're, like, <laughs> they're like, I'm paying my neighbor for the solar energy from his roof. And you're like, yeah, but you're maybe even no. your neighbors, but you're not yeah. actually on the same feeder. And you're like, it's not his energy. You're not getting your neighbor's energy. That's BS, like not how it works. You're right. getting the right to say that you bought solar energy, which is but a wreck. I think there's two points here though that like you know you both are talking about one is the financial settlement right and two is what duncan's concerned about is the, the physical physics. the physics what's going on so to the on the one hand like you started talking about the <laughs> the loch ness curve or whatever it is <laughs> whatever they were calling it yeah over, the loch ness curve it's because okay so like imagine on, imagine the duck's okay, belly is like under the water right and so okay. So it, it kind of looks like a little Loch Ness monster because the water okay. is the is the base level. It's where you go negative. I think of like, you know, everyone's producing solar in this little neighborhood. You have like clouds pass overhead on just sort of that feeder. You know, is there some lag time between that little locale and the bulk created? Like, can that create problems in a way where you have, you know, over voltage or, or poor power quality events just sort of in split second timeframes because there's this massive kind of power drop just because clouds went overhead, right? Right. Um, so that's, there's like a physical 
component of this where the financial layer would have to respond by either buying from the bulk grid or people's batteries discharging right away and you know really quickly in a way yeah. right so coupling these two things the physical constraints with you know financial markets i think is a huge technical challenge which in my totally. view you know the, the the part of it of blockchain that maybe gets tied in here is actually is microtransactions right because mm -hmm. There's two sort of issues that I see in creating this very fast acting settlement layer in the grid. One is we've always done things very conservatively. So I'd imagine if we were to do this now, everyone with solar, if you wanted to create a marketplace, there'd be all these like complicated escrow structures. And yeah. how do you make sure that everyone's getting paid properly? And the second thing is within that, what people fail to understand in the whole going back to the, you know, expensive transactions is that it actually scales down to zero. If you have a Bitcoin transaction of like 10 cents, yes, there's a fee associated with that that is larger than, you know, proportionally of like a $100 credit card charge, right? But credit card charges, you need, it's something like 20 cents base layer and then 3% on top of that, I think, for each transaction which is why there's like $5 credit card minimums or $10 when you go into your local bodega, because there's a, there's a point where the transaction actually doesn't make sense because it's too small. But with blockchain, the idea of microtransactions is actually you can make these very small settlements. And when you get down to that smaller scale, it's actually cheaper and better than credit cards, right? People talk a lot about in the blockchain space, microtransactions. So if you think of the grid sort of operating in real time, you're using five kilowatt hours at seven cents a kilowatt hour from my solar array or whatever, and you're bidding in that in real time, whether it's credit cards or escrow mechanisms or all this stuff, right? You know, it, it's a difficult yeah. sort of problem to unpack, I guess. The two problems you just raised are the things that blockchain is really good at. So I think from the payment side, right? So again, there's the payment side, the financial side, and the physical side. And so from the payment side, tracking which money belongs to who is like why blockchain was invented, right? It's like very good at tracking those like digital assets of currency. And then also setting up escrows is essentially a side chain, right? So when you talk about the Lightning Network in Bitcoin... Right sort of a channels with your neighbors, right? Yeah. A channel with your neighbor where you say like, we're not going to settle every time we do a five cent transaction, we'll settle every hundred dollars or something along those lines. And that allows you to reduce the number of transactions on the actual blockchain while still creating this ledger. And there's a whole different governance structures around adjudication. If someone disagrees or something. We're, we don't need the main chain because we trust you enough yeah. Uh, exactly. You know, you're my boss, and you pay me, so our like payroll becomes on a on a lightning. Yeah, channel and everything is still blockchain. tracked, like until it's brought into the real chain, and then the right. sort of final one is tracked right. in the real but chain. But it's so less it's, secure, still... so it's faster, right? Exactly. We're trading security for speed. <laughs> That's sort of the exactly. trade-offs we're making. Totally right, and there's like certain ways of allowing you to do it with people you don't trust through like chains change, but. Highly recommend people really interested in the technology of blockchain side to just go deep in that on their own time. But I think where it gets really difficult and where people don't spend a lot of time is that tie of the financial and the physical. And that's where I think if you can figure that out with blockchain, you unlock this crazy thing where you can create distribution markets, which I think is personally where I 
like see the future grid going. It's like we need to have some sort of price differentiation at these really granular levels. I mean, otherwise you don't have a good way of like rewarding people and incentivizing people to change their behavior for the issues that exist in their specific area. Right. We need a market. Uh, you need a market. You need a market. And right now and, markets and aren't so, designed so- to handle that. Back to Duncan's point is like a smart contract could actually be really good at doing this in real time without sort of a system operator overseer. Because a smart contract would be like, if sort of all these conditions are met on the physical layer of the grid, then we'll allow this transaction to happen. And it can happen in real time very quickly, right? And I'm not sure, however we're building our grid right now, we're not ready to do that. No. And that's why I think you're seeing a lot of these like early use cases with blockchain tend to be either just wreck markets because mm-hmm. people sort of understand that they can try out blockchain, figure out how that works. You're dealing with the financial side, you're dealing with the auditing side, right? And you don't have to worry about if something breaks, you haven't broken the grid, right? You don't have an outage. And then the other area where I think people are starting to try and get at it, again, mostly with the financial side, where I think you could start tying in the physical side potentially, is these really early transactive energy applications, right? So you have demand response, which has you know, been around for ages. It still takes a few weeks generally to sort of verify that the DR event has occurred properly, that you've gotten the reduction you expected. And so this gives you the option to potentially come to standard terms on how to verify whether it's happened or not and pay people in real time for participating. Right. And the reason for that delay is we're trusting, you know, the utility to parse through all this data, you know, mm-hmm. they have to, you have to so collect right the now, data, you have to go right. into it, you have to understand what happened, right? You have to work with whatever third party the utility is using to do the DR events. And right. yeah, it takes time. So the utility is actually at this moment in time, both the, you know, the distribution level infrastructure owner and the operator of the system. So they kind of make sure power is flowing correctly on their distribution network. What New York Rev is doing is internal to the utility right now, or at least making all of the those sort of internal mechanisms of a utility face externally through the distributed system operator, right? So now instead of just trusting the utility to run the grid, they're creating a marketplace that people can kind of transact and play in that. And, and where I see that going is ultimately that part will get segmented out of the utility itself. So so there's going to be a difference between the infrastructure owner and the actual system operator. We'll get into a broader conversation, but um, when I talk about franchise rights, it's this idea that maybe at the local level, there will be different infrastructure owners than just the local utility. When I was building solar you know, so I was doing local kind of commercial and residential rooftop solar design and engineering, whatever. And you can't overproduce like in any utility territory, right? So when net metering, you get a one-to-one credit up to a hundred percent of your yearly demand or monthly demand or whatever it is. Why can't you overproduce, right? This This is why we need a marketplace. It ties into that. So in my way, that's the user being censored, right? Because they should be able to sell as much power into the grid as they want. Like as soon as you're allowing a, a user to sell into the grid, why are you capping it? That that's just shows that it's because it hurts the utility's business model or whatever, right? So, or, or at least like ability to handle it. So the, right. the third component is this idea of governance, censorship resistance. Like 
if you're letting users sell into the grid, we need a stable structure that doesn't change over time and, and people can feel confident installing these 25-year assets in, in ways they want. And we don't need to look to the utility every time we do it. Utilities don't need to be the ones that know when I participate in a DR event, I'm turning my thermostat down two degrees and I'm turning off my lights and you know, I'm changing my fridge temperature, right? Like that can be either the, a particularly energy savvy customer, or it could be a company that has hopefully it'll in. be, that's what we're building yeah, in a way, right? Is, is managing that for users because it's complicated and they, they don't really want to do it. So we'll step in exactly. and do that for them. Essentially. Yeah, you, and, you know, offer different, different ways of, of sort of rewarding customers for that. Will you get some of the upside in terms right. of like the bidding exactly. into markets? And so, to me, the right the governance component becomes important because you want to enable pl all these different players to play in whatever way that they want. So if I'm an individual contributor and I live in a constrained network and I want to be able to maximize all of that myself, great. Like more power to me. If I'm someone who doesn't really care at all, but I want it to be really simple, I'm like I want to pay sixty dollars a month for my electricity and I never want to think about it. There's like someone there for me who's going to offer me some sort of package where they'll optimize my devices and they'll give me that rate. And assuming I stay within some band, I won't have to change. Right. It you, sh you should be free to kind of choose between the two. Scenarios. You know, and then, yeah, and I should be free to do that. And then there should be someone who like, they just want to spend whatever they want to use whatever they want. Fine. Like, great. <laughs> and so I think that knowing the governance structure is important, but I also think that like figuring out who's enabling, but utilities will still need visibility into like, how things are being used and how things are changing. And they need to be able to also say like, this is the constraint I am seeing. And so deal with this constraint right. and send those signals. And that's where I think the coordination component of blockchain, the ability to like share the information that is required to be shared, where everyone kind of has their own information in there. Utility can maybe see more things than each of the individual aggregators, but the aggregators can see their own things and the overall system. And that's something that blockchain can also permission while also allowing for these markets. And so that's where I see the real potential of that system is that sort of collaboration and coordination through disparate parties in um, the UK, uh, there's a company, Electron, that's mm -hmm. doing an asset registry of distributed energy resources, right? And it's specifically for that, which is to say the utility needs to, needs to be able to have some visibility into what's there in order to understand like what's happening in the markets and how they should anticipate and forecast specific feeders, right? Totally. Because if you don't know what's going, you don't know that there's you know, a building that's now overproducing solar and you haven't planned for that, that's going to create grid problems for everyone. And so there is this question of, you know, you don't necessarily want the utility to own the data and all of those things, but maybe we do all agree the utility have, should, should have visibility into that. And so that's where I totally. think, yeah, that's where I think like something like blockchain where you have, where it's very good at a registry of assets, uh, <laughs> you can sort of start mapping those items and you can incent and then you can also potentially incentivize people to map those through some sort of tokenization or credit system whereby that's how the utility is potentially responding to either aggregators or individuals who are registering these assets right in that situation like where we have a der asset registry are, are we worried about like registration fraud is that why we're like thinking of blockchain as the solution because you could just have a google sheet right like like what, what not literally but like 
this entire conversation, I haven't understood why we need blockchain. <laughs> well, so <laughs> that's like, actually, no, that's a, a great, great question. Okay, so like, what I was what, literally just, what I was literally just going to say next, I think it's going to be a long time before we see blockchain on the grid, if at all. Like there's, I just don't, I don't see it right now. And it's because of the point you just brought up, right? So if, if we need to register these assets, we need to get permission from the infrastructure owner to put these assets on the grid, right? Like you said, why can't the utility just have an Excel sheet? Why do we need this? Uh, you know, and like we do this already, right? We right, have like exactly. Connection agreements. We have like this is right. thing. Maybe your dishwasher isn't registered when right. it's like a smart dishwasher, but like it could be easily. Right. It's the, cause that's just more demand side. It's a good question of why not just have the utility have a registry of all the assets. But in this case, you're assuming that the asset registry is the utilities. And I think with blockchain, the idea is that if you want to enable this sort of distributed market where you can be having these, maybe the utility is putting in what it wants to happen and what the signals are, but you can coordinate with others what is happening. You don't necessarily want the utility to be the controller of that sheet right you might want that to be a little bit more distributed or decentralized and so it well i think that was my question right it wasn't necessarily the utility but it was like who owns it i I don't understand this stuff enough to like speak eloquently but like there's one google sheet we all put our assets on or we all have a copy of it and have this complicated software layer that manages it to make sure everybody's so where you where you need it is if you're you can freely add and remove from that spreadsheet, right? But that's just so a that, decision, that, right? That's not like a right. technology thing. That's just like no, no, no. Spreadsheet. But, everyone has edit access or not? No, but the like, the point being blockchain? the point being is that we don't freely sure, add and sure. leave that Excel, which is is where I'm saying makes blockchain not interesting on the electricity grid because there's a physical infrastructure. Whether you've already built the DER and you're being added to some registry, or you want to build a DER and get added to that registry, you need permission from someone, whether it's the PUC, if like they're big enough, or the utility because they own the local distribution, you need to interconnect into the grid, right? So like by its nature, the the electricity grid is a permission system, and I haven't really seen an interesting blockchain project that is permissioned yet? There's sort of two types of architectures are being set up. So a permissioned blockchain essentially means that not anyone can join the blockchain and not everyone can validate transactions on the blockchain. So in a permissioned blockchain, you usually have known validators. So a lot of what the utility industry is using right now is a proof of authority mechanism. And so often Uh, like Energy Web Foundation, which is a permissioned private blockchain. The transactions themselves are private, but the people approving the transactions are validator nodes, which are often other utilities or large energy companies like Shell is one of the validator nodes as well as startups. So there's, you know, I think they have in the 80s, let's say, and it's like maybe a quarter startups, 60% utilities, and then some like large energy and venture companies. Uh, And so in that case, the idea is that people can trust the system. It offers a lot of the same potential that sort of traditional permissionless blockchain would offer, but you don't have as much of the risk of 
let's say now two thirds of your miners are based in China and you're your US utility trying to distribute the physics of your grid, you might have some concerns with that. I think that's why a lot of people haven't to date been using it because right. haven't been using permissionless mm -hmm. systems, which to contrast, everyone can be a validator network. All you have to have is enough computing power, you know, a computer, maybe more than a computer these days. If you're doing Bitcoin, you need like a whole server rack, but- Duncan uh, can go buy a mining rig and yeah. like a, a Casa node or something and like start yeah. start validating transactions and, and mining Bitcoin. Exactly. And, so, and no one, you don't have to ask anyone to do that. You can just do it. And if you do it right, like the market will compensate yeah. you for, <laughs> for that. Um, yeah. And, and, and I as a user can yeah. get, like I can buy, I, I don't need to ask anyone, right? So mm -hmm. um, yeah, you can the just data is the just out there. You can just you can even start changing the underlying code and fork the the blockchain. Maybe no one will follow you, but uh, you can you can do all this stuff to it without permission. Yeah, and that's the and so, power of it, right? It's yeah. a, a truly this distributed network. Of, and of so that point there, I think you know, there's permission systems tend to be what we talk about in the developed sort of Western grid where. We have a, this a lot of overbuild. We care a lot about reliability. We're very, you know, risk averse, and I think it offers like marginal improvements and potential ways that when we do get to the sort of distribution market world or grid flexibility market world, we'll have some some added benefits. I don't think it's like a panacea solution. I don't think it's going to totally transform everything. Uh, where I think it has that potential is in the community microgrid space. Right. So I think whether that's in off-grid areas that are gaining access to electricity or whether that's in, you know, parts of California dealing with wildfires and trying to figure out how to keep running when they've been shut off in a public safety power shut off. To me, the ability within a community to manage your power uh, and determine, you know, I have a lot, I have a bigger roof. And so I have a lot of solar on my roof. And how do I share that with my neighbor? And how much of that do they physically get or not? The tying of the physics to it, I think is still interesting. But the whole idea is that in that community, there may not be a specific, you know, trusted third party or someone who knows how to run the grid better than anyone else. And so you just have to sort of keep the system in check and in those cases, I've seen it actually paired a lot with microgrid controllers. So you put a blockchain layer on a top of the sort of microgrid controller software layers to help with that bid settlement. Yeah, I mean, the, the community microgrids are we're, we're kind of a lot of these ideas we're talking about converge, right? Well, do you want to like explain briefly what a community microgrid is? Yeah, so here I'm defining a community microgrid as a microgrid that has multiple parties. So often when we think of a microgrid, there's usually multiple buildings um, or multiple systems, but it's one sort of off taker. So the person mm -hmm. who owns the on-site generation is also the person or company that is using said on-site generation. And when you start to share energy with your neighbors, that's where we run into a lot of utility franchise rights, which is why a lot of community microgrids haven't really been developed in the U.S. because it's really difficult um, to figure out how to build it and who finances it and how you share power when there's an outage. Because I think that's a big question, right? Let's say you have a neighborhood that has a school, a hospital, and like 50 homes, right? And normally you all get grid power and then you lose that power and you have a microgrid and you don't have enough power generated within your community to power everyone at 
the normal levels they would get. How do you determine whether it should just go to the hospital or if it should go 90% of the hospital, 10% to the school, or if the household should be get enough to keep their refrigerators on? And how do you tell if someone is using their fridge or their TV? Um, those are all questions. How do you right? price this it? This is incredibly yep. scarce power. Like maybe I really just don't want it. Like I don't want your 50 cent backup power. Right. Like it, it, I think it's incredibly complex. Exactly. So th this is where, you know, we were talking about these emergent phenomena, right? That we may see on, on the grid and, and why I say, I don't think we'll see blockchain soon. And I'm not super optimistic. That doesn't mean I don't think people should keep working on it and keep tinkering. And like, I'd actually love because on like in these edge cases, and then what happens if that community microgrid is, uh, you know, hooked into the bulk grid still, so they can mm -hmm. island, they can sell in, they can buy, and then we have, you know, hundreds of those community microgrids, right? If the grid truly gets starts getting built in this bottom up fashion, like Duncan said, it's incredibly complex, and I think the way to do it is you create incentive structures via a marketplace that drive us towards you know certain outcomes and then you just have to kind of let it run right you you can't do it in this top-down grid operations way that we've always done it yeah. and a big part of this is the infrastructure itself like you you talked about colleen franchise rights uh so utilities or franchise rights are when if i build a wire over a public right of way to say another building that could be an off taker for my backup generator the utility can step in and say no you can't do that this is my territory only i can do that in my territory but when you look at these edge cases in california with like the you know fires and all this stuff maybe it would be okay to let people build those private wires and kind of own them and and sort things out themselves as a collective of counterparties and those situations are where I like I I I see the sort of blockchain case, right? Because yeah. it's incredibly complex. There's no really it's it's the grids being built in this kind of organic haphazard way, you know, a collective of decision makers, and there's no kind of central utility being like, you put this here, you do that. So so you need a way to kind of self-organize. Yeah. And what's interesting is I was um a couple of years ago I was speaking with uh micro developer in um, some of the Caribbean nations and they were explaining to me in some systems right people are allotted sort of a certain amount of power and if, like if too many people are using too much power at a time they'll just throttle people's meters right and so you'll like your power will shut off and then when you go to turn your power back on it will like you'll see a little there's like a little screen on the meter that's basically like you have to use less power right now um <laughs> sorry <laughs> or we're just going to turn you off again, which is something that is so crazy to think about happening in the U.S. But in areas where you're redesigning how to build the grid right now and you're thinking through these problems of do we way overbuild so that at any time of the day, if everyone wants to have their air conditioner and all their lights and all the stuff at the same time, we'll just turn on this really dirty generator. Or do you just sort of say like, you know what, you got to use some, you got to use less. Right. So I That's think... I think it's it's like it blows our mind in the U.S. to think about electricity that way. But I think a really interesting sort of edge case to talk about is actually sort of in some of the developing countries in Africa, there's a lot of solar and batteries being installed because that's an area where I don't see, you know, you don't see like some 
major national centralized grid infrastructure build out mm -hmm. process happening like we did in the 30s, right? So you may see the grid start getting built up in this bottom up fashion where, okay, you know, my neighbor got uh, solar and a TV and some lights. Like the relationship with energy is way different. So when you don't have energy, it's just, you know, energy is such a great thing or electricity that, that it's okay when you don't have it. <laughs> or like on the, uh, you know, in island nations, people are, are used to being throttled or in the US we're not. But then I'm, I'm kind of curious in watching how as more solar gets put into villages or townships or whatever, um, and I'm not a huge expert on, you know, African power grid, so apologies uh, in advance if I'm like bumbling here, but how do, it, it may make sense eventually to sort of start in, interconnecting those systems and, and sort of mm -hmm. who starts doing that. And there this isn't is a, a, there is not a trusted third party to a look A grid to. of grids. Right. <laughs> but, but seriously, like, and then people can kind of come and go as they please. They can add more solar or whatever. Uh, so you know, I, I think like that's sort of when you look at those scenarios and we may see this happen in the US, something similar to what I just described in kind of community microgrids, you know, that, that those are the cases where I think blockchain actually becomes interesting. Um, and to Duncan, to your point, you know, there's scarce power. It's like, maybe I don't want your 50 cent per kilowatt hour power, but making all those decisions, it, it will have to be kind of in a distributed manner. We don't right. have the utility to lean on, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, and, and you could say, but think of that, right? Like, what if you had the ability and to say, you know, I will buy power from the microgrid when Island did if it's the same price as I would pay for the grid. And if it's not, then don't give me power. And so let's say that, you know, the power goes out in the summer and all of the, you know, generation systems in the microgrid are running sort of at full speed. You know, it's really sunny out, the solar's going, the battery was fully charged, and you don't expect the outage to be for that long. And so you know, you can get power for pretty cheap. That person now can keep their power on and it's great. And then let's say maybe it's not and it's expensive. You know, maybe there's a library in that neighborhood. And so maybe everyone when it's, you know, really hot for the few hours a year can just go hang out at the library and like be in a community center. You know, it, it would be a very large mind shift in the U.S. So I think sometimes right. it's hard to think about that working here. But I think as we start seeing more things like California or even larger storms that, yeah, or New York Rev, that's sort of encouraging potential uh, community microgrids, we'll start thinking a little bit more about how we can share and conserve in, in times of need and what it really, I guess it, it opens up and I don't know how much we want to go down this, but to me, when you start being able to sort of parse out what people's energy they're using, right? Like, let's say you had real-time data and you can tell someone's using their refrigerator versus watching TV, right? right. Like the, the signature is a little different there. And so with electricity as like a human right, which I do fundamentally believe it is, how much of that is a human right? You know, are you allowed to throttle someone's TV, Right. But it, not their fridge. Like not to say that we have the technology to do that, but like if you did, is that something that you should be allowed to do? Um, it opens up a lot of like equity questions when you start getting into microgrids and how you share power across them. And we generally, because we didn't have a lot of visibility into households um, or into businesses, you know, everyone's sort of like electricity and heat, right? Our human right, you can't shut off people's gas usage in the winter in most places because it would 
you'd be denying them heat, which is fundamental. And I think that's good. And it's like sometimes when we start drilling down into how people use it and whether it's required, I it opens up to me a lot of these other questions. Well, so I think what you're talking about, right, is like is, is governance structure in a way. And, and, and that was yeah, actually totally. why I was really interested in and still interested in the Energy Web project. So Energy Web, I sort of saw as the most interesting or kind of where I had placed my hopes. I thought proof of authority on a grid, which is fairly permissioned, at least was like opening up the decision-making process to different validators, right? So it could be project developers, it could be infrastructure owners, it could be generators, it could be customers themselves next to the utility. So at least that's like starting to put together this sort of everyone has a seat at the table, but where I think they went wrong is just where you said where the validators are there, you know, energy grids are local. Right. So when we talk about a community microgrid or New York's infrastructure, totally different than California. So why is like the Japanese utility, <laughs> like I think it's TEPCO or whatever, why are they a validator on my network or why are they part of my governance structure? Right. Mm-hmm. So I think when we when we think of all this stuff and we think of something like proof of authority actually working, if the authorities involved are local so like you said and how do you make the decision making the decisions around oh why don't you know the library or the hospital gets the power when it's scarce <laughs> or, or some right. you know edge case like that uh in a in a environment where power is is scarce there should be a it should be the community that makes those decisions right and and that's sort of what i think at least i heard when i started reading up on proof of authority and like red energy webs you know, white paper. And I think I know some of the people over there, I think they're great too. But I, I, I started, I sort of lost that enthusiasm when I saw validators and people within that governance structure being sort of non-local, not part of the community, not part of that grid infrastructure. Yeah. I was trying to think through the system architecture to say like, if you had a, let's say one of your apps was a community microgrid app, every community where you have a microgrid, you can have your own application that maybe sits on that larger validation node but maybe each time you're transacting within that's like a side channel transaction yeah totally so and so there's potential to sort of leverage that larger system that has (laughs) built a lot of the foundational items you need and then build on top of that these sort of systems that work within your community well so this is actually these are the types of arguments carl and i used to get into when he was like (laughs) starting grid plus as we would talk about if you kind of have a distribution feeder, there's a lot of solar and smart thermostats and batteries on that distribution feeder, but then that's still corresponding with the bulk grid. Like, do you trust kind of one community manager to bid that whole distribution level network into the bulk grid, or do you let everyone kind of participate individually? Mm-hmm. And I actually, I've always been fascinated by that question. I think that's actually what we're trying to answer at David Energy, right? Is like managing right. users' assets for them as a retail electricity provider leveraging these behind the meter assets into uh, into bulk, you know, wholesale markets. Like we've said, we like markets, you know, the bulk grid is awesome. Sharing power is great. So we're not saying like ditch it all and go build a bottom up infrastructure, but where kind of all those ideas converge and how, you know, to your point, the architecture of a potential like blockchain based system operator sits within that. I really like, I 
think the answers to these questions will kind of emerge as we get more and more penetration, right? We'll start seeing problems like who knew about the Loch Ness curve? <laughs> I've learned about it today, right? There's all this stuff <laughs> that's starting to happen and we're yeah. like, oh, we need to solve this problem. As problems develop, people will find solutions. And blockchain, I think, is one of the tech reasons it's been such a confusing technology is that it never really had an individual problem it was trying to solve in the energy industry. Everyone just sort of had this feeling that it would be able to solve problems. And so the general approach has been like, let's just think of every single problem the energy industry has and right. test if blockchain can fix it. And yeah, so exactly. that's why you have, you know, all of these proof of concepts happening around the globe. And what I have started to see is that companies are finally starting to be like, this is what we do. You know, at first, every company was like, I do peer-to-peer -peer and demand response and asset tokenization. And I also sell recs. And, oh, you're interested in supply chain? We can do that. And now companies are like, I help with, you know, providing like demand response or community, you know, engagement and how they use energy. Or right. I'm a recs provider. That's all I do is recs. Or, you know, like I'm focused specifically, or I'm a supply chain company that's not an energy company. And like I come and sell the utilities on supply chain token. You know, it's become a lot more targeted. People right. understand yeah. what they're selling. They feel like they have a product. A lot of the companies that sort of popped out for their quick money with their initial coin offering are gone and that's fine. And then some companies that had big initial coin offerings are still out there, you know, doing their thing. Like totally. Power Ledger is you know, in the news still every couple of weeks for some new Asian microgrid peer-to-peer -peer pilot that they're doing. I'd, I'd still say like, I mean, I don't know if they call them pilots, but they have all these sort of small projects happening um, that <clears> still to me feel largely more like the financial side than the physical side. Right. But It's like we're blockchain in energy is a solution where the problems are, are like five to 10 years from now you know, we're, we're building out in advance. Like we don't see them really today. So people are like, what are you talking about? But when you get into like franchise rights, high DER penetration, high variable renewable energy penetration, everyone's building towards that future. And so I totally encourage all the, you know, I, I think proof authority back to your point on architecture. If you actually read the white paper, they have a lot of really interesting kind of approaches there. Grid plus is looking at you know, they got into hardware because they realized kind of this problem around transactions and microtransactions and uh, sort of escrow and all the like security around that. And then, um, you know, Electron with the asset registry, like that's another piece of the puzzle. So I think, I, I don't think that these are companies kind of looking for problems and they already have the solution. I actually do think like we're kind of 10 years, five, 10 years into the future in a way, but they're all kind of building one piece of the puzzle and to see how those things kind of converge or interact over, over time could, could be really interesting or not, you know, we just don't know. But. Right. No, and I think that's actually exactly the point though, is, is blockchain itself is still being worked through and it's probably still five, 10 years out. And all of the DR problems that we have are also probably still emerging in five, 10 years out. So hopefully they'll just both be ready at the same time. And then blockchain will be the perfect solution to this problem that is emerging. Well, yeah. I mean, they could totally develop in tandem, right? Um, that would be, that would, I, I'm, I'm for that, right? I'm just, you know, I have to be honest that today, like, I don't have any predictions about where blockchain will go in energy or think there's any like real kind of paradigm shift use applications right now. 
I like keep working on it, guys. You know, I, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, because you know, and and even DERs may stall out. Like, who knows? So, so if if, <laughs> if everyone's building blockchain towards like high DER environments, you know, I'm I, I'd love to kind of see them develop in tandem. I guess. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've said this before, but I do think that if blockchain fundamentally succeeds we won't be talking about it when we get to the point of high penetration DERs because the the set of technologies that underpin blockchain that make it quote unquote blockchain will just become things that you we do just as use, you, right. that you just use, right? Exactly. It's like, we don't really talk about, well, I mean, you, you do because you build software, but... <laughs> or you're optimizing people's assets so you you might be thinking about it and talking about it but the average person isn't going to be like well i want my dr system to run on blockchain right they're going to say like i want a dr system that it can bid into this distributed market and can optimize my assets the best right um and can protect my data and allow me to see things and so if that technology happens to be blockchain great um and if we have developed a new riff on that technology that we now just call distributed ledger technology or we decide it's not a distributed ledger technology and it's something else like and it's some of the tools that blockchain use now fine you know ultimately it's a question of are you going to have you know at what point does it stop are you using cryptography and you know like distributed consensus mechanisms and you know like record you know ledgers of your transactions like that's basically what blockchain is right it's like those three things brought together in a new way and everyone's like, oh, fancy technology. Like they've all existed since computing existed. It's just a different way of doing it. And it's the ability for us to have faster, better computing that's connected to the internet, right? That's enabled the sort of creation of this. Right. I, I mean, and to, to sort of that point, like, you know, we're kind of seeing the pitfalls of how we built our internet. So mm-hmm. to the extent if you're building software, um, like that kind of underlying infrastructure is a lot of what, you know, blockchains pointed at. Like I think Urbit is one of the coolest projects out there right now. You know, there's, there's Bitcoin, like you see Jack, the, the t- CEO Twitter tweeting about like Twitter, maybe some algorithm layer on top of sort of blockchains eventually and not uh, the, the data storage system itself in a way. The point being there's like, that sort of base layer of, you know, infer- internet or IOT or whatever technology may, may be changing. And that just sort of gets embedded in how, you know, smart <laughs> assets are connected and all this stuff over time. So to your point, Colleen, like I, I agree, I think with a lot of the hype dying, um, you know, there's still people really just kind of building away at this and, um, we, we won't really be talking about it in the same way we are five years from now. Like it may just become more sort of second nature, just embedded in, in how everything <laughs> works. So it's not this like silver bullet. You know, there's so many problems out there to be working on uh, that don't involve blockchain that will create the environment that calls for it potentially. But, you know, I, 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 uh, I, I definitely agree with you that, that we're just sort of in this weird moment right now where, uh, it's still hype and people aren't, you know, it's probably the same way that people use the word internet, like in the early nineties or something. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. And I'd say like, I'm still bullish on the, on the concept of the 
high penetration der problem that blockchain is totally. trying to solve totally i think so. it's a very good potential um like that that's i'm really only you know interested in like the paradigm shift applications here i guess not like the sort of novel minor improvements but i think those minor improvements can lead to that and so i i, I agree with you i'm still very excited about what blockchain could offer in the environments that we're building towards which is high der environments so uh, Duncan, did my, we lose you man yeah what's we want i want to hear your a little bit <laughs> i mean i've been like profoundly quiet during this conversation <laughs> um i mean i i don't know i see all energy discussions through like a climate lens right mm -hmm. and so to me like the reason i am really interested in der's and and you know spend all my time working on them is they they you know they help the grid become cleaner and they help the grid become more resilient um and like per the paris agreement that's what we have to do cleaner and more resilient uh but then vitally we need to do it quickly very quickly so i've sort of internally signed up for suboptimally building the grid because mm. we have to transform it in like a decade or two right so discussions about like stuff that maybe ekes out these like marginal benefits and like is really heady like almost doesn't interest me anymore <laughs> because if it doesn't answer the question it'll help us build more clean energy faster i kind of like zone out um because i don't think we can solve any of these problems until we solve that right so that that's kind of my view like if someone could tell me blockchain's gonna make <laughs> like lower the emissions intensity of the grid or make it more reliable more quickly than the way we are doing it now i'm in if not i i just like i my eyes kind of glaze over how how could we focus on anything other than the big job which is build lots of stuff fast it's so high penetration of ders but we would need in theory to make that world happen do we get there without some sort of distribution level coordination that's what I was. I mean, say I think too. there are ways, yeah, but they're they're sort of the opposite of blockchain, right? They're like very centralized, like authority based ways of just like, Fair. you know, the the U.S. just decides we're going to do it, and like in literally ten years, we just build tons of stuff, and then we figure it out. Like that's I, to me that like that's the only way I see us getting through this issue at this point. Like, and I'm almost fearful of, I, I had the same feeling during the franchise rights discussion, which is like any proposed solution that requires like this almost like cosmic shift in how we think about the grid is like another 10 years where we don't do anything. Like I, it, it, the, the rev experience has kind of like hardened me to this, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like, what, what if we were just dumping money into the grid? for the last 10 years like just letting utilities just right, rate well, base it all just rate just go forth and build ways, but what, whatever it may be <laughs> like like what, what if we just cut the military budget and dumped it all into the grid like i, I realize that i have yeah. this like refrain refrain in these topics right or, I, like, I think I you said a similar thing during franchise rights what if we just pay for it but like how can we be talking about anything other than like you know we're like melting the earth right now we have a handful of years to build all this stuff even if we did what you just said, we will need what we're talking about. Like, you know, I definitely admire your, uh, you know, your resolve in this, but I, I view it as like, this is going on in parallel. I mean, obviously I've started a company that's mm -hmm. uh, like going to, or, or is 
you know, working on exactly what you just said. But I also I, foresee let, a let future where there are a lot of problems doing. and we need, like, we're going to need this stuff. So it's good to talk about it. Keep the conversation framed, maybe in a way that you just said, right? Like, we have this very large macro goal um, of, like, uh, you know, mm. decarbonizing the electricity grid. That was definitely why I got into this space. But I also think we can make a cheaper grid for people. I think we can make it more resilient. I think we can give them more control. I think I think we can do all these things in concert. Um, so no, they shouldn't come at the expense of building really fast. Um, and if they, you know, these heady discussions were to start like blocking that, then <laughs> I'd start to see your point. But I think like watching New York and California is so interesting because California is taking this top-down approach. New York's taking this bottom-up approach. I think they both my view is really that they both kind of converge on the same thing because like the natural equilibrium if you kind of start at first principles from what a distributed grid looks like requires everything that we're talking about like it'll just again like kind of emerge out of how we do this it's not like if you really wanted to do it the way you're talking about do a france did and just like build a ton of nuclear you know I'm because down. <laughs> but that's fine You're like, yeah like i mean uh, whatever uh, i saw you i saw your tweets on tesla doing modular nukes modular oh, yeah. nukes are dope i i hope we figure that out i don't know much about them but you no, know I, I yeah i don't want to come off as like the like to downplay everything because like for example i think like what david energy is doing is key right we need to monetize flexibility to get to high penetration on renewables it has to happen and you're working on a way of doing it that like i think end users actually want to sign up for so right and doesn't doesn't key. wait for this like so, future world yeah, so, right so like not, it's applicable now exactly. yeah so, so i'm not trying to like you know throw cold water in on everything but like so much of this conversation and maybe i fundamentally misunderstand blockchain but like the thing i was thinking the whole time was just like why does everyone need a copy of the spreadsheet like <laughs> that, that, it just it's a distributed ledger how does right. this help us yeah really? like it's a valid I, I point. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I agree so with the you way, right now. Yeah. The, yeah. And I, I guess what I would say there is like the way I think about distributed ledgers, it's not that everyone who participates it in it has a copy, right? The distributed ledger component for me is more, that's how you have some sort of sense of security because in order to change transactions or alter a smart contract, you would need sort of the approval of multiple parties, which is where the benefit of, from the security side comes in. But a lot of it is really this ability for people to bid into a system and have that system settle without a third party who is adjudicating that system because you set up the rules of the market in a way that is self-sufficient. And that is where I think it enables higher penetration of DERs than a current system might be able to because you have this ability to create decisions at the edge of the grid that are better and faster optimized than decisions that would be made if you had to send every signal from the edge of the grid to a centralized server and back again. And so that's where I get excited about it. I agree that multiple copies of things and how you store transactions and how you store data, like that side of it, I'm less interested in. And so there's probably other ways of doing it outside of blockchain. But for me, that is the key component is right. enabling those distributed markets that don't have to have exactly. this central system for every transaction. Right, because in that That's central system, like, like what if, Duncan, to your point, you know, I, I already think utilities are slowing the adoption of, of solar, right? I mean, not, not 
only for like malicious intent or it's affecting their business model or whatever. But there's also the real like making sure the physical infrastructure keeps working. But in the case where, you know, like I was talking about before, I want to put 10 kW of solar on my roof and I can only do five because that's my like the maximum amount that's right right so there are cases where our trusted third party the utility is kind of blocking adoption rates especially in some of the more still vertically integrated states right um, I, I personally i just see that as like a social problem right because like utility can't totally do it, could, it doesn't have to be blockchain right. i'm not saying that i was right. just sort of positioning it as if yeah. blockchain were the one solution to make this all work then you would get behind it because it would actually help sure. quicken adoption yeah. rates, right? Yeah, if like if, yeah, one way of saying this is like if we had all this blockchain tech ready to roll and like deployed it alongside Rev, right? And it mm -hmm. made Rev go faster and like really happen quicker and like Veeder was more transparent, blah blah blah. Like, you know, I'd be ringing the bell right now. Right. Um, so, so like, <laughs> no, that's great. A good, it's a good answer. Like if that was the case, like, yeah, I, I really would be all in. Um, I think that skepticism is like what we need as part of the conversation too. Right. Cause there's a lot of people out there who like only cared about, we're going to disintermediate the utility and all this, like, you know, just not really, you know, I think framing that the conversation in, in the right way, there's like a lot of kind of interlocking parts here. So your emphasis on, the climate goals I think is like needed in the conversation, right? Yeah. I mean, I, and I guess, you know, I don't know. I think the way Colleen phrased it like worked for me, that, that makes sense. Like, like if the argument here is that like, we're going to hit sort of limits where putting all these DERs on the grid or even just putting like big central variable renewables on mm -hmm. the grid too, like is going to create issues that like we don't yet have answers for, and this could be an answer. Like then, to me, that's very compelling. And that is, I think, where I see it being exciting. I think in the short term, a lot of the following of it is sort of just how do we test it now so that when we hit those problems, which, Duncan, to your point, is hopefully much sooner than we all want to hit those problems, right? Because the sooner we hit those problems, it means we've been effective at deploying DERs faster than we know how to manage the grid with those DERs, which right. is, I think, what we need. We need to be pushing those limits. Right. Because to some extent, yeah, California has a lot of curtailment, which is an ideal, but much better to have curtailment and be like, oh, it's a problem. How do we solve curtailment than to not build enough to the point that you don't have to curtail. Right. And that, and that forces like now we have curtailment and it forces the question of how do we solve curtailment? And right. so similarly in the distribution level grid, right, you until you have your lockness curve, you don't know that it's going mm -hmm. to exist or how you should start mm -hmm. solving it. And now that it exists, you can start thinking of solutions. And I think it's sort of what keeps me around here or, or like why I remain so fascinated in this space is like the system architecture that how do we operate this grid properly with high renewables penetration, all that, right? Um, and how do we make it a better system than the one was prior so that people want that system, right? Where they're like, let's build renewables faster. Everything's cheaper and more resilient. I think we should just federalize the grid. <laughs> Just build it out. Nobody pays a bill. Like just, and we're set. Like that's, that's, this podcast is making me a socialist. 
All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode. Please go to DERtaskforce.com and sign up for our newsletter. That's how you'll find out about the newest meetups, about the newest podcast episodes, and get content from old meetups like slides and Q&As and videos. Additionally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please check us out on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It really helps promote what we're doing. And lastly, tell us what you think about blockchain for DERs. Hit us up on Twitter at DER underscore task underscore force. Thanks. Talk to you soon.